This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Tanya Thompson, writer and creator of Nightlight, the Black Horror Podcast. This week, we have another story from Charles Chestnut. Charles was the first widely recognized Black American fiction writer. Like The Grey Wolf's Haint, this story is also from his collection, Conjure Woman. The Conjurer's Revenge is one of my favorite stories of the collection, but truly all of his stories are excellent. In a time when most African Americans were writing about the harsh life of Black people in America, Charles wrote, and preserved our traditions. Fiction can be a luxury in difficult times, and at a time when black people were fighting for their very lives, Charles Chestnut saw the role fiction could play in healing a nation, and for that, I am thankful. And now, Conjurer's Revenge by Charles Chestnut. Sunday was sometimes a rather dull day at our place. In the morning, when the weather was pleasant, my wife and I would drive to town, a distance of about five miles, to attend the church of our choice. The afternoons we spent at home, for the most part occupying ourselves with the newspapers and magazines, and the contents of a fairly good library. We had a piano in the house on which my wife played with skill and feeling. I possessed a passable baritone voice and could accompany myself indifferently well when my wife was not by to assist me. When these resources failed us, we were apt to find it a little dull. One Sunday afternoon in early spring, the balmy spring of North Carolina, when the air is in that ideal balance between heat and cold where one wishes it could always remain, my wife and I were seated on the front piazza, she wearily but conscientiously plowing through a missionary report, while I followed the impossible career of the blonde heroine of a rudimentary novel. I had thrown the book aside in disgust when I saw Julius coming through the yard under the spreading elms which were already in full leaf. He wore his Sunday clothes and advanced with a dignity of movement quite different from his weekday slouch. Have a seat, Julius, I said, pointing to an empty rocking chair. No, nah, thank you, boss. i just sit here on the top step. Oh, no, Uncle Julius, exclaimed Annie. Take this chair. You will find it much more comfortable. The old man grinned in appreciation of her solicitude and seated himself somewhat awkwardly. Julius, I remarked, I am thinking of setting out scuppernong vines on that sand hill where the three persimmon trees are. And while I'm working there, I think I'll plant watermelons between the vines and get a little something to pay for my first year's work. The new railroad will be finished by the middle of summer, and I can ship the melons north and get a good price for them. If you're going to have any more plowing to do, replied Julius, 
I expect you'll have to buy another creature, cause it's much as them horses can do to attend to the work they got now. Yes, I had thought of that. I think I'll get a mule. A mule can do more work and doesn't require as much attention as a horse. I wouldn't advise you to buy no mule, remarked Julius with a shake of his head. Why not? Well, you may allow it's all foolishness, but if I was in your place, I wouldn't buy no mule. But that isn't a reason. What objection have you to a mule? Fact is, continued the old man in a serious tone, I don't like to drive a mule. I's always feared I might be imposing on some human creature. Every time I cuts a mule with a hickory, appears to me most likely I's cutting some of my own relations, or somebody else what can't help themselves. What put such an absurd idea into your head? I asked. My question was followed by a short silence, during which Julius seemed engaged in a mental struggle. I don't know as it's worthwhile to tell you this, he said at length. I don't hardly expect for you to believe it. Does you remember that club-footed man would help the horse for you the other day, when you was getting out of the rockaway down to Mazachi McMillan's store? Yes, I believe I do remember seeing a club-footed man there. Did you ever see a club-footed nigger before or since? No, I can't remember that I ever saw a club-footed colored man, I replied after a moment's reflection. You and Miss Annie wouldn't want to believe me if I was to allow that that man was once a mule. No, I replied, I don't think it very likely that you could make us believe it. Why, Uncle Julius, said Annie severely, what ridiculous nonsense. This reception of the old man's statement reduced him to silence, and it required some diplomacy on my part to induce him to vouchsafe an explanation. The prospect of a long, dull afternoon was not alluring, and I was glad to have the monotony of Sabbath quite relieved by a plantation legend. When I was a young man, began Julius, when I had finally prevailed upon him to tell us the story, that club-footed nigger, the name is Primus, used to belong to old Mas Jim McGee over on the Lumberton Plank Road. I used to go over there to see a woman what lived on the plantation. That's how I come to know all about it. This here Primus was the liveliest hand on the place. All is a dancing and drinking and running round and singing and picking the banjo. Excepting once in a while when he'd allow he wasn't treated right about something or another. He'd get so sulky and stubborn that the white folks couldn't hardly do nothing with him. It was getting the rules for any of the hands to go away from the plantation at night, but Primus didn't mind the rules and went when he felt like it. And the white folks pretend like they didn't know it, for Primus was dangerous when he got in them stubborn spells and they'd rather not fool with him. One night in the spring of the year, Primus slipped off from the plantation and went down on the Wimbledon Road to a dance gun by some of the free niggas down there. There was a fiddle and a banjo and a jug going around on the outside, and Primus sung and danced along about two o'clock in the morning when he stopped for home. As he come along back, he took a nigh cut across the cotton fields and along by the edge of the mineral spring swamp so as to get shut of the paddle rollers 
what rid up and down the big road for to keep the dockies from running round nights. Primus was saunting long studying about the good time he'd had with the gals, when as he was gone by a fence conder, what should he hear but something grunt? He stopped a minute to listen, and he heard something grunt again. Then he went over to the fence where he heard the fuss, and there laying in the fence conder on a pile of pine straw, he seed a fine, fat shoat. Primus looked hard at the shoat, and then started home. But somehow or other, he couldn't get away from that shoat. When he took one step forwards with one foot, the other foot appeared to take two steps backwards. And so he kept naturally getting closer and closer to the shoat. It was the beatingest thing. The shoat just appeared to charm Primus. And first thing you know, Primus found himself way up the road with the shoat on his back. If Primus had a known whose shoat that was, he'd have managed to get past it somehow or another. As it happened, the shoat belonged to a conjure man who lived down in the free nigger sediment. Cause the conjure man didn't have to work his roots but a little while before he found out who took his shoat. And then the trouble begun. One morning, a day or so later, and before he got the shoat eat up, Primus didn't go to work when the horn blow. And when the overseer went to look for him, there wasn't no trace of Primus to be discovered nowhere. When he didn't come back in a day or so more, everybody on the plantation allowed he'd run away. His master advertised him in the papers and offered a big reward for him. The nigger catchers fought out the dogs and track him down to the edge of the swamp, and then the scent gun out, and that was the last anybody see the premise for a long, long time. Two or three weeks after Primus disappeared, his master went to town one Sunday. Mas Jim was standing in front of Sandy Campbell's bar room up by the old wagon yard when a poor white man from down on the Wimbledon Road come up to him and asked him kind of careless like if he didn't want to buy a mule. I don't know, says Mas Jim. It depends on the mule and on the price. Where's the mule? Just round here, back of old Tom McAllister's store, says the poor white man. I reckon I'll have a look at the mule, says Mas Jim, and if it suit me, I don't know but what I might buy him. So the poor white man took Mas Jim round back of the stove, and there stood a monstrous fine mule. When the mule see Mas Jim, he gonna whinny, just like he knowed him before. Mas Jim looked at the mule, and the mule appeared to be sound and strong. Mas Jim loud they appeared to be something familiar about the mule's face especially his eyes. But he hadn't lost near a mule and didn't have no remembrance of having seen the mule before. He asked the pole buckra where he got the mule, and the pole buckra say his bruh raised the mule down on Rockfish Creek. Mars Jim was a little suspicious of seeing a pole white man with such a fine creature, but he finally agreed to give the man $50 for the mule, about half what a good mule was worth them days. He tied the mule behind the buggy when he went home and put him to plowing cotton the next day. The mule done mighty well for three or four days and then the niggas meant to notice some queer things about him. There was a meadow on the plantation where they used to put the horses and mules to pasture. It was fenced off from the cornfield on one side but on the other side of the pasture was a tobacco patch where it wasn't fenced off cause the beastesses done none of them eat tobacco. They don't know what's good. Tobacco is like religion. 
the good Lord made it for people, and there ain't no other creature what can appreciate it. The doctors noticed that the first thing the new mule done, when he was turned into the pasture, was to make for the tobacco patch. Of course, they didn't think nothing on it, but next morning, when they went to catch him, they discovered that he'd eat up two whole rows of tobacco plants. After that, they had to put a halt on him and tie him to a stake, or else they wouldn't have been near a leaf of tobacco left in the patch. Another day, one of the hands named Dolphus hitched a mule up and drive up here to the vineyard. That was when old Mars Dougal owned this place. Mars Dougal had killed a yelling, and the neighbor white folks all sauntered over for to get some fresh meat. And Ma's Jim had sent Dolphus for some, too. There was a wine press in the yard where Dolphus left a mule standing, and right in front of the press there was a tub of grape juice just pressed out, and a little to one side a barrel about half full of wine where it had been standing two or three days, and had begun to get sort of sharp to the taste. There was a couple of boards on top of this here barrel with a rock laid on them to hold them down. As I was saying, Dolphus left a mule standing in the yard and went into the smokehouse for to get the beef. By and by, when he come out, he seed the mule was staggering about the yard. Before Dolphus could get there to find out what was the matter, the mule fell right over on his side and lay there just like he was dead. All the niggers about the house run out there for to see what was the matter. Some say the mule had the colic, some say one thing and some another. Till by and by, one of the hands seed the top was off of the barrel and run and looked in. For the Lord, he say, that mule drunk, he been drinking the wine. And sure enough, the mule had passed right by the tub of fresh grape juice and pushed the cover off in the barrel and drunk two or three gallons of the wine would have been standing long enough for to begin to get sharp. The donkeys all made a great miration about the mule getting drunk. They never hadn't seen nothing like it in they bone days. They poured water over the mule and tried to sober him up, but it wasn't no use, and Dolphus had to take the beef home on his back and leave the mule there till he slept off his spree. I don't remember whether I told you or not, but when Primus disappeared from the plantation, he left a wife behind him, a monstrous good-looking yellow gal named Sally. When Primus had been gone a month or so, Sally meant for to get lonesome and took up with another young man named Dan what belonged on the same plantation. One day this year, Dan took the new mule out in the cotton field for the plow. And when they was gone along the turn row, who should he meet but this here Sally? Dan looked round and he didn't see the overseer nowhere, so he stopped a minute for to run on with Sally. How there, honey, says he. How you feeling this morning? First rate, spun Sally. They was looking at one another, and they didn't dare one of them pay no attention to the mule who had turned his head round and was looking at Sally as hard as he could, stretching his neck and raising his ears and whining kind of soft to herself. Yes, honey, lies Dan, and you're going to feel first rate long as you sticks to me. For I's a better man than that low-down runaway nigger primus that you've been wasting your time with. Dan had let go the plow hander and had put his arm round Sally and was just going to kiss her when something catch him by the scruff of the neck and flung him way over in the cotton patch. When he picked himself up, Sally had gone kitten down the turn row 
and the mule was standing there looking as calm and peaceful as a sunny morning. First, Dan had allowed it was the overseer what had caught him wasting his time, but there wasn't no overseer in sight, so he concluded it must have been the mule. So he pitched into the mule and lammed him as hard as he could. The mule took it all and appeared to be as humble as a mule could be. But when they was making the turn at the end of the row, one of the plow lines got under the mule's hind leg. Dan reached down to get the line out, sort of careless-like, when the mule hauled off and kicked him clean over the fence into a briar patch on the other side. Dan was mighty so from his wounds and scratches and was laid up for two or three days. One night, the new mule got out in the pasture and went down to the quarters. Dan was laying there on his pallet when he heard something banging away at the side of his cabin. He raised up on one shoulder and looked round when what should he see but the new mule's head sticking in the window with his lips drawn back over his tooths, grinning and snapping at Dan just like he wanted to eat him up. Then the mule went round to the dough and kicked away like he wanted to break the dough down till by and by somebody come along and drive him back to the pasture. When Sally come in a little later from the big house, where she'd been waiting on the white folks, she found Poe Dan nigh about dead. He was so scared. She allowed Dan had had the nightmare, but when they look at the dough, they see the marks of the mule's huffs, so there couldn't be no mistake about what had happened. Cost the niggers told a master about the mule's goings on. First, he didn't pay no attention to it, but after a while, he told them if they didn't stop their foolishness, he gonna tie some of them up. So after that, they didn't say nothing more to their master. But they kept on noticing the mule's queer ways just the same. Long about the middle of the summer, it was a big camp meeting broke out down on the Wilmington Road. Now about all the poor white folks and free niggers in the settlement got religion. Lo and behold, amongst them was the conjure man who owned the show with Charm Primus. This conjure man was a guinea nigger and before he was sought free, had used to belong to a gentleman down in Sampson County. The conjure man say his daddy was a king, a governor, or some sort of whatchamacallum, way over yonder in Africa, where the niggers come from, before he was stowed away and sold to the speculators. The conjure man had helped his master out in some trouble another with his goofer, and his master had sought him free and bought him a track of land down on the Wilmington Road. He pretended to be a cow doctor, but everybody knows what it really was. <coughs> the conjure man hadn't mowed and come through good before he was took sick with a cold when he caught kneeling on the ground so long at the mourner's bench. He kept getting worse and worse, and by and by the rheumatiz took hold of him and brought him all up, till one day he sent word up to Mars Jim McGee's plantation and asked Pete, the nigger what took care of the mules, for to come down there that night and fetched that mule what his master had bought from the poor white man during the summer. Pete didn't know what the conjure man was driving at, but he didn't dare to stay away. And so that night, when he'd done eat his bacon and his hoe cake and drunk his molasses and water, he put a bridle on the mule and rid him down to the conjure man's cabin. When he got to the dough, he lit and hitched the mule and then knocks at the dough. It felt mighty jubilous about going in, but it was a bleach to do it. He knowed he couldn't help himself. Pull the string, says a weak voice, 
and when Pete lifted the latch and went in, the conjure man was laying on the bed, looking pale and weak, like he didn't have much longer for to live. Is you fetched a mule? says he. Pete say yes, and the conjure man kept on. Brah Pete, says he, I's been a monstrous sinner man, and I's done a pile wickedness in doing it in my days. But the good Lord has washed my sins away, and I feels now that I's bound for the kingdom. And I feels too that I ain't gonna get up from this bed no more in this well, and I wants to undo some of the harm I done. And that's the reason, Bra Pete, I sent for you to fetch that mule down here. You remember that show that I was up to your plantation quiet about last June? Yes, says Bra Pete. I remember your asking about a shoat you had lost. I don't know whether you ever learned it or no, says the conjure man. But I done knowed your master's premise that took the shoat, and I was bound to get even with him. So one night I caught him down by the swamp on his way to a candy pulling, and I throwed a goofer mixture on him and turned him to a mule, and got a poor white man to sell the mule, and we divided the money. But I don't want to die till I turn Brother Premis back again. Then the conjure man asked Pete to take down one or two gauze off in the shelf in the corner and one or two bottles with some kind of mixture in them and set them on a stool by the bed. And then he asked him to fetch the mule in. When the mule come in the dough, he got a snort and started for the bed just like he was going to jump on it. Hold on there, Brother Primus, the conjure man hollered. I's monstrous weak, and if you commence on me, you won't never have no chance for to get turned back no more. The mule see the sense of that and stood still. Then the conjure man took the gods and the bottles and minced to work the roots and yerbs, and the mule minced to turn back to a man. First his ears, then the rest of his head, then his shoulders and arms. All the time the conjure man kept on working his roots, and Pete Primus could see he was getting weaker and weaker all the time. Pete, says he by and by. Give me a drink of them bitters out in that green bottle on the shelf yonder. I's gone fast, and it'll give me strength for to finish this work. Brah Pete looked up on the mantelpiece, and he see the bottle in the corner. It was so dark in the cabin he couldn't tell whether it was a green bottle or no. But he hilt the bottle to the conjure man's mouth, and it took a big mouthful. He hadn't more than swallowed it before he minced to holler. You give me the wrong bottle, Brad Pete. This here bottle's got pizzin in it, and I's done for this time, sure. Hold me up for the Lord's sake till I get through turning Brad Primus back. So Pete held him up, and he kept on working the roots till he got the goof all took off in Brad Primus except in one foot. He hadn't got this foot more than half turned back before his strength gun out entirely, and he dropped the roots and fell back on the bed. I can't do no more for you, bro, Primus, says he. But I hope you will forgive me for what harm I done you. I knows the good Lord done forgive me, and I hope to meet you both in glory. I sees the good angels waiting for me up yonder with a long white robe and a starry crown, and I'm on my way to join them. And so the conjure man died, and Pete and Primus went back to the plantation. 
De darkies all made a great miration when Primus come back. Mars Jim let on like he didn't believe the tale the two niggas told. He says Primus had run away and stayed till he got tired of the swamps and then come back on him to be fed. He tried to account for the shape of Primus's foot by saying Primus got his foot smashed, a snake bit or something, whilst he was away and then stayed out in the woods where he couldn't get it cured up straight instead of coming long home where a doctor could attend to it. But the niggas all noticed the master didn't tie Primus up, uh, take on much cause the mule was gone. So they lied their master must have had his suspicions about that conjure man. My wife had listened to Julius's recital with only a mild interest. When the old man had finished it, she remarked, That story does not appeal to me, Uncle Julius, and is not up to your usual mark. It isn't pathetic. It has no moral that I can discover, and I can't see why you should tell it. In fact, it seems to me like nonsense. The old man looked puzzled as well as pained. He had not pleased the lady, and he did not seem to understand why. I'm sorry, ma'am, he said reproachfully, if you don't like that tale. I can't make out what you means by some of them words you uses, but I'm telling nothing but the truth. Course, I didn't see the conjure man turn him back, but I wasn't there. But I've been hearing the tale for 25 years, and I ain't got no occasion for to dispute it. They so many things a body knows is lies that they ain't no use going around finding fault with tales that might just as well be so as not. For instance, there's a young nigger going to school in town, and it come out here the other day and loud that the sun stood still and the earth turned round every day on a kind of axe tree. I told that young nigger if he didn't take himself away with them lies, I'd take a buggy trace to him. If I sees the earth standing still all the time, I sees the sun going around it, and if a man can't believe what he sees, I can't see no use in living. Might as well die and be where we can't see nothing. And another thing what proves the tale about this old Primus is the way he goes on if anybody asks him how he come by that club foot. I asked him one day, mighty polite and civil, and he called me an old fool and got so mad he ain't spoke to me since. It's monstrous queer. This is a queer world, any way you can fix it, concluded the old man with a weary sigh. If you makes up your mind not to buy that mule, sir, he added as he rose to go, I knows a man what's got a good hoss he wants to sell. Leastways, that's what I heard. I'm going to prayer meeting tonight, and I'm going right by the man's house. And if you'd like to take a look at the hoss, I'll ask him to fetch him round. Oh, yes, I said. You can ask him to stop in if he is passing. There will be no harm in looking at the horse, though I rather think I shall buy a mule. Early next morning, the man brought the horse up to the vineyard. At that time, I was not a very good judge of horse flesh. The horse appeared sound and gentle, and as the owner assured me, had no bad habits. The man wanted a large price for the horse, but finally agreed to accept a much smaller sum upon payment of which I became possessed of a very fine-looking animal. But alas for the deceitfulness of appearances. I soon ascertained that the horse was blind in one eye, and that the sight of the other was very defective, and not a month elapsed before my purchase developed most of the diseases that horseflesh is heir to, 
and a more worthless, broken-winded, spavin quadruped never disgraced the noble name of horse. After worrying through two or three months of life, he expired one night in a fit of the colic. I replaced him with a mule, and Julius henceforth had to take his chances of driving some metamorphosed unfortunate. Circumstances that afterwards came to my knowledge created in my mind a strong suspicion that Julius may have played a more than unconscious part in this transaction. Among other significant facts was his appearance, the Sunday following the purchase of the horse, in a new suit of store clothes, which I had seen displayed in the window of Mr. Solomon Cohen's store on my last visit to town, and had remarked on account of their striking originality of cut and pattern. As I had not recently paid Julius any money, and as he had no property to mortgage, I was driven to conjecture to account for his possession of the means to buy the clothes. Of course, I would not charge him with duplicity unless I could prove it, at least to a moral certainty, but for a long time afterwards I took his advice only in small doses and with great discrimination. Thanks to our newest patron, Kay, we couldn't do this without you. You, too, can keep us from going the way of the horse in the story by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash nightlightpod to become part of the Nightlight Legion. You can join us for as little as $1 per month. If Patreon isn't your jam, you can make a one-time donation to the podcast via PayPal. Go to paypal.me slash nightlightpodcast to help us pay black horror writers. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate every single one of our members and donors. But if you aren't able to support us financially, sharing and reviewing the podcast is immensely helpful in attracting advertisers and sponsors. Today's narration is provided by LibriVox.org, free of charge. The narrator is James K. White, audio production by Jen Zink. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another story. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.